Well, hey, this is the Walk On Podcast. I'm Brent Faulkner, and following Jesus is a journey, and I hope that this podcast helps you take your next step. Well, hey, Walk On friends, I'm back with another Fear Not episode, and I hope that this series has been helpful for you as you've been listening through these episodes. One of the bigger goals of all of these episodes is to help shift your perspective so that you can approach the difficult and confusing parts of Scripture with curiosity and openness instead of fear. And I've said it before, but I believe that the good news really is good news. And because of Christ, fear and condemnation shouldn't influence our relationship with God or how we interpret Him through the Scriptures that we read. So in this episode, we tackle another topic that has brought some confusion and fear to people. We're going to talk about communion, particularly one section of scripture about communion, 1 Corinthians 11. Maybe you've heard this referenced or heard it read uh, in a church service before taking communion. Uh, but there's a part in 1 Corinthians 11, 27 to 30. It says, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. And that is why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. Whoa, that really just makes you want to go take communion, doesn't it? <laughs> what's, what's going on here? Well, when, when I've seen this scripture referenced in regards to communion, it's, it's usually used as a, as a warning and a reminder to take the ritual of communion seriously. It's used as a call to pause and check our hearts and motivations it's usually a somber and quiet moment of personal reflection, and we're usually instructed to stop and acknowledge any unconfessed sin that we have. It's a moment that's just you and God. And the motivation behind approaching this scripture with that perspective, I think, is good. I mean, what communion represents is, is it is serious and integral to our faith, and, and we don't want it to become an empty ritual devoid of meaning. But can we just acknowledge the fear behind all of that perspective as well? I mean, I had somebody once approach me in tears because they were afraid to take communion. They were afraid that they might take it in an unworthy way and be punished by God for it. And so they just were paralyzed in fear and weren't able to participate in this beautiful sacrament. I've also seen communion used almost as a weapon by people to point out who's in and who's out. I actually heard one pastor proudly describe how he will go up to people during a church service and tell them that they're not allowed to take communion because he knew that they were actively sinning. And in his mind, he was protecting them from potential punishments that would come if they took it unworthily. But all this makes me ask, is that how God wants us to feel about this beautiful and sacred ritual? Is communion supposed to invoke fear every time we take it? Are we supposed to worry about being punished? And how do we know if we aren't taking it in an unworthy way? What's going on? Well, if you've learned anything from these series, you've learned that the first step in wrestling through a difficult passage is to look at the context. 
Why was this written? And to whom was it written? And then when you dig into the context, then you can learn some principles and perspectives that then you can look at applying to your perspective. But it always starts first with the context. So in 1 Corinthians, we have to keep in mind that this is a letter that Paul wrote. It's a letter of our New Testament, and it was written to a specific group of people at a specific time, and Paul is addressing specific issues. And there are things that we can learn and apply, but remember, these letters are not written directly to us. I've heard someone say that you should read these letters from Paul almost like you're reading somebody else's mail. Now you see kind of just one side of a conversation that's happening between two different people. So with that in mind, then let's dig into the context of 1 Corinthians. What do we know about this letter and what is Paul trying to accomplish? Well, as you read through 1 Corinthians, you realize that Paul writes this letter to address and correct several errors and bad practices in the church. The church in Corinth is not a model church. And as you get into chapter 11, one of the things he begins to address is the way that they gather together and what they do in their worship services. And one of the issues he's concerned about is how they celebrate communion. So let's read through this whole section about communion, because what I read earlier was just one little segment of it. Let's read through the broader section and see what we can discover. So 1 Corinthians 11, starting with chapter 17, and Paul writes, In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. Okay, so we see that Paul is addressing what happens when the Corinthian church gathers together to worship. And it seems like there are divisions or factions that are being caused because some people are trying to show that they have God's approval over others. So let's read on and and see what these things might be. Verse 20. So then, when you come together, it is not the Lord's supper you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. All right, so Paul is addressing what they do when they get together for their church gathering And when the early church would gather, they would eat a meal together and celebrate communion or the Lord's Supper. And Paul points out that as they do this, some have nothing to eat, while others have such an abundance that they eat their fill and end up drunk. And he points out and says that those that eat all of their own food and have their fill are humiliating those who have nothing. And I wonder if this is some of what he referenced earlier about those trying to show that they're approved by God. So this problem that Paul addressing seems to be a division that's caused by economic disparity and and caused by selfishness. I mean, maybe another way that you could paint this picture is think of, of a school lunch table where one kid pulls out just a slice of bread out of a brown paper bag because that's all his family could afford while the kid across from him opens up a cooler with soda and all kinds of Lunchables and Dunkaroos and candy. And then he looks at the kid that just has a slice of bread and brags about how his parents must love him more because they packed him a better lunch. 
I think that's a little bit like what is happening in the church of Corinth when Paul points out this disparity and how when they gather together, some eat their own food and to have it to their fill and get drunk while others sit there hungry because they have nothing. And so then this is where Paul lays out a meaning of communion to remind them. It's a section of scripture that often gets read at our communion celebrations. He says, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So Paul points the Corinthians back to the meaning of the Lord's Supper, that Jesus' act on the cross was one of selfless love, a willingness to lay down his own life for others. And this is in direct contrast to the self-centeredness of the Corinthians during their meals. Paul points them back to the meaning of communion because communion celebrates the extent that Christ took to unify us with God. Communion is about unity with Christ and then unity with his body, the church. And Paul is pointing out the hypocrisy that the Corinthians celebrate a ritual that is about Christ bringing us together with him through his body and his blood, but yet they couldn't be more divided as they take that sacrament. And it's worth noting that the phrase together appears often in this passage. In fact, the Greek word that's translated as together or come together occurs eight times in the entire letter of 1 Corinthians. And five of those times are right here in this passage. And so Paul is emphasizing that communion is about unity. It's about coming together and remembering and celebrating what Christ has done for us. So keep this in mind as we read the rest of the passage as Paul gets into some of these warnings. Verse 27, So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we were more discerning in regards to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home so that when they meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give further directions. So let's unpack these warnings verse by verse in light of the context of the situation that's going on. So Paul says, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. So with the context in mind, what does Paul mean by an unworthy manner? I don't think that he's talking about taking communion without confessing sin from your past week. I don't think he's talking about taking communion if you haven't been baptized or if you haven't gone through confirmation. 
In fact, I don't think when he says taking it in an unworthy manner, I don't think it's a, a private thing at all. For Paul, in this context to the Corinthians, taking communion in an unworthy manner was the wealthy people of Corinth taking communion after they've totally ignored the needs of the people around them. They were eating and drinking to excess while others were going hungry. And it seems that they even felt that their abundance of food and their selfish eating was actually showing that they were approved by God, while the others that are sitting there hungry must not have God's favor. And so Paul's saying that that attitude, that lack of awareness for the rest of the body of Christ is the unworthy manner. And when you do that, you are guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord because the ritual of communion is about unity. It's about Jesus paving a way for us to be united with him and his body to be united together. And it's all about this selfless act of love that Jesus demonstrated And so a selfish approach to communion and to the Lord's Supper is contrary to God's heart for the sacrament, for the ritual. And then Paul goes on, he says, everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So what should you be examining? Paul's saying they need to examine how they're relating to the rest of the community. It's not so much an examination of private sins, but of relational interactions, what is their motive for eating the meal before the church celebrates communion? Why, why are they not sharing with those who are hungry? And this parallels the practical advice he gives at the end of this section that, that anyone who's hungry should just eat something at home, right? It's a practical step to solve this problem. And then he says, for those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. So let's clarify what, when he talks about the body of Christ, what is he referring to? I think in this context, it's clear that the body of Christ is the church. He's not necessarily talking about the literal body of Jesus, but he's talking about the body of Christ as the church, the community of people that have gathered together. He's advising the Corinthians to discern the rest of the community, to be aware of the needs of the people around them. Okay, so now let's talk about this phrase that he says, that they eat and drink judgment on themselves. I can hear that as, as a punishment, that they're being punished for not doing communion right. But if you think about judgment, it, it's really a decision that's made upon evidence, right? What does a judge do? They look at the evidence of a situation and then they make a decision or a judgment based upon what is revealed. So I think what Paul is saying here is that the Corinthians, that, that when they gather to eat their meals and they don't pay attention to the needs of the rest of the church body, their behavior, their eating and drinking reveals the condition of their heart. Their eating and drinking is all the evidence needed for a judgment to be made to show that they are missing what communion is really about. They judge themselves by their own behavior. They'd eat and drink judgment on themselves because their eating and drinking reveals the true nature of of their heart, the true nature of what's going on in the situation. And so then Paul follows that statement up with a challenging verse that lots of people wrestle through. What exactly does he mean by this? He says, that is why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. Now, let's just acknowledge that this can be a source of a lot of fear. We're thinking about 
um, judgment. And then thinking about Paul saying, that's why many among you are weak, sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. What's going on with this verse? And to be honest, I've wrestled with this, with the meaning of this. And so I want to unpack three different perspectives that I have found uh, as I've looked into this of different ways to interpret what Paul's trying to say here. And all of these perspectives, they're all influenced by how you read some of the previous verses and understand the context. So some understand this phrase to be, to be literal sickness and death. And they believe it to be sent by God or allowed by God as a punishment for how the Corinthians are treating the church community. So you can see it as an active punishment as a result of judgment that God has rendered. And I would say that view probably is one of the more common views with some different nuances in it. But understanding that this, the weakness, the sickness, and the death that comes is uh, an active punishment from the judgment that God has rendered in the hopes that it would get their attention and lead them to repentance. Now, other people, when they come to this verse, they see this as, as figurative, that this isn't necessarily an active punishment from God, but that weak, sick, and, and fallen asleep is a figurative way to talk about their faith, that the faith of the Corinthians has, has withered away, right? That their actions have weakened and even allowed their faith to die, their hearts are clearly hardened, right? The way that they are approaching the community and not even seeing the needs of the people around them shows that, that they do have a, a weak faith, maybe even a dead faith. And Paul is trying to get their attention to help bring their hearts back to Jesus. And so in this view, the, the weakness, the sickness, the death is a figurative way to talk about the condition of their heart, the condition of their faith. And then a third way to look at this is to understand weakness, sickness, and death to be the natural consequence of the inequity and injustice in the community. So that the weakness, sickness, and death isn't a direct punishment from God, but that those who are weak, sick, and even dying are the ones that that have nothing. They're the ones living in poverty. They're the ones that are going hungry at the meals. And their needs are not being met by the community, and therefore they are suffering, right? And that suffering is a direct consequence of the disunity and dysfunction of the Corinthian church. Now, this third perspective is, is the one that I tentatively hold at the moment. And I also acknowledge that it's probably a view that's in the minority, so that's why I, I hold it loosely um, but for me, as I dig into the context, this perspective is one that fits with what I'm seeing, right? It goes back to the phrase at the beginning of the section that, that I think points to the mindset of the wealthy Corinthians. Paul said, you know, no doubt that there have to be divisions and factions among you to show which of you have God's approval. In other words, it seems that the wealthier Corinthians viewed their economic status as proof that God has approved of them that they're accepted by God, right? I mean, think back to the kid with the big lunchbox bragging about how much his mom must love him. Of course, this mindset is actually anti-Christ, but you could see how that view could allow some of the wealthy Corinthian Christians to ignore the needs of their brothers and sisters. 
right? If they view their economic status as a direct blessing or punishment from God, then if you have more money, if you are wealthier, then you must be approved by God. And if somebody is poor and struggling, then they must be being punished by God. And so it almost alleviates you from stepping in and doing anything to, to help or anything to meet the needs, because this is, this is how God's judging them. You could see how that leads them to ignore the needs of their brothers and sisters. And in the resulting hunger and sickness that comes from that is a condemnation the Corinthian church brought on themselves. When Paul talks about eating and drinking judgment on themselves, their actions and their, their lack of meeting the needs of the people that have them reveals is the judgment of their own hearts And it's certainly cause for Paul to strongly address the community. Paul's clearly letting them know that this is not how the gospel is lived out. And this perspective is actually contrary to the heart of the Lord's Supper of communion to begin with. So three different perspectives. And I think you can be a faithful Christian and hold to to, um, either one of those. But regardless of how you understand that difficult verse about weakness, sickness, and death, what the Corinthian church is doing is clearly not what Christ intended when he inaugurated the first communion in the upper room with his disciples. Paul is clear. The Lord's Supper is about unity that Christ's sacrifice brings with God and with one another. And the Corinthian church was missing the point. All right, so that's a lot of information. That's the context that as you look at the, the broader scriptures around, the, the story, the, the context of the Corinthian church kind of comes to light and it helps us understand what Paul's saying. So now, what about us? What can we learn from this context and how should we approach communion today? Well, first of all, I would encourage you again, do not fear. Communion is a beautiful celebration of Christ, and it shouldn't bring fear and worry. And I also want to acknowledge that it shouldn't be entered into flippantly, and it shouldn't be just an empty ritual. There's incredible depth and meaning to it. But it wasn't intended to bring fear and worry and condemnation. Remember that these things that Paul is addressing are directed to a specific issue for a specific group of people. His words aren't directly to us today, but we can learn from them. So here are a few things I think that we can learn. First, communion is meant to unify and not divide. I think the context surrounding Paul's discussion about communion makes it clear that it's intended to unify the church. It's a time to celebrate together and declare that the foundation of our faith is in Christ And any observance of communion that creates divisions or factions or elevates one group over the other misses the intent of the sacrament and the heart of the gospel. And unfortunately, communion is one of those issues that has divided the modern church instead of unifying it. And I think that breaks the heart of Jesus because it was meant to unify and not to divide. It's time for us to gather together and declare the thing that we have in common of who we are in Christ, above all the other identities that we have, that's the thing that unifies us, that we are one in Christ Jesus. 
I think we can also see that communion is a, a we in Jesus moment and not just a me in Jesus moment, right? It, it's intended for us to, to look at the, the rest of the community, the corporate body as we celebrate together. The irony of many modern practices of communion is that we do just the opposite of what Paul's challenging the Corinthians to do. We take an individualistic lens, and instead of examining our relationships with those around us, we think just solely about our own selves and our own relationship with God. And that's not wrong, but there's so much more. It's also a we in Jesus moment, not just a me in Jesus moment. And so as we enter in communion, part of the challenge of entering into that sacrament is to think about how is the community doing? What are the needs of the people around me? How can I be supporting and encouraging and, and bearing each other's burdens? Because communion is a we in Jesus moment in addition to being a me in Jesus moment. And I think we also see that the gospel always points us towards love for one another and not legalistic rules. In the wide variety of problems that the Corinthians had that Paul addresses in this letter, his solution to all of them is to point them back to the gospel. And that's what he does in this problem with communion. He points them back to the heart of the gospel, the reason why Jesus first instituted this ritual. So when you talk about the gospel, you realize that the good news that Jesus brings about is a new kingdom and a new way of life. His crucifixion was the ultimate act of self-giving love, willing to lay himself down for the love of others. And then his followers are now empowered to model that new reality in their relationships. And by our unity and the way that we love one another, we show that the good news is for everyone. By the way we love one another, we demonstrate this new way of life. And so the ritual of communion is a beautiful celebration of this gospel truth that at the heart of the gospel is that there is room for everyone because of the self-giving love of Jesus. And so as we approach communion, it's important to hold the heart of the gospel in mind that what Jesus came to do was not to set a bunch of legalistic rules, to not set a bunch of boundaries and guidelines that we have to obey if we're going to be right with him. He paved the way and through his blood on the cross, he makes us right with God. So we already belong and then we get to extend that love and that grace to the people around us and remind them that there's a seat at the table for them as well. What Jesus did with the gospel fulfills what God has been up to all along. I mean, listen to what was promised by the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah 25, he says, On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples. A feast of rich food for who? All peoples. So the divisions and the factions that the Corinthian church was demonstrating as they gathered together for their feasts is contrary to the heart of what God has been doing throughout history to bring all people to come into relationship with him. Isaiah foretold it. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples 
a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He's destroying the thing that separates us. It says he will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from the earth. The Lord has spoken. There are enough seats at the Lord's table for all. And because of what Jesus has done for us, he has made a way. We can now approach him with confidence and boldness and security in his love. And anything that causes us to create fear and worry and condemnation is not what God intended. And I think it breaks the Lord's heart to see when we take a beautiful remembrance of him, the celebration of communion, and we twist it and we distort it and we use it to divide and we use it to to put the burden of fear and worry on people when it's intended to do just the opposite. It's a celebration of God's fulfillment to his promise to us that we are all invited to his table. We are all invited to feast and enjoy and taste and see that the Lord is good. That's my comments on communion. And and I hope it changed your perspective of how you see some of those challenging verses. But as we close, I want to invite us into a moment of imaginative prayer to dwell upon the radical truth of the gospel, the thing that we celebrate when we celebrate communion. So wherever you are, I invite you to take a deep breath and focus in on God's presence with you. And I invite you to go on this imaginative prayer journey with me. Imagine that you are lost in the wilderness. You've been traveling for days and you're still not sure where to go. Your food is gone and it's been over a day since you found water. Your feet are heavy, your mouth is dry and your body aches. And you're heading uphill And each step takes an act of the will to pull off. You're slowly losing hope. As you crest the top of the hill, you see a small valley below. And to your surprise, you see people. You can hear their laughter from a distance. And you realize that where there are people, there's probably food and water. And so you make your way down into the valley. A sudden burst of energy that you didn't know you had propels you. And as you draw closer to the group of people, you see that they're gathered around a massive table. You've never seen a table so large. And then you smell it. It makes your mouth water. There's food. Oh, delicious food. And you begin to notice the people at the table eating so many different types of people, but they all seem to have been lost travelers like yourself, worn out clothes, dirt caked to the creases of their faces, but they're relaxed, refreshed, laughing and eating. 
and you wonder, what is this strange place? But, but more urgently, you worry, am, am I able to join? Can I have some of that food? And before you reach the table, a man comes out to greet you. He doesn't look quite like the others. His clothes and his face are clean. But what catches your attention the most is his face. He smiles a big smile as he approaches. His eyes light up with joy. Welcome, my friend. You must be tired and hungry. We have a seat at the table for you. Will you join us? You're not quite able to form a word, but you shake your head yes. And the man leads you to a seat, saying, Welcome to the table of grace. Feast and enjoy. And as you sit down, you realize that your chair has your name on it. How could that be? It's almost as if this place was prepared for you. But you don't spend too much time thinking. You're starving after all. And you begin to eat. Oh, the food. The delicious food. It's exquisite. And you eat your fill and you drink. And then you begin to talk with others sitting at the table, sharing stories of all the travels and adventures that you've all experienced. And as you do, you feel a sense of camaraderie and connection. You've just met these people, but it feels like you've known them forever. And it's then that you notice the empty chairs at the table. And each chair has names on them as well. And you ask, and you learn that those are for other lost travelers making their way to the banquet feast. Now I invite you to imagine that you look at the names on the empty chairs. Take this moment to ask God to help you see what names are on those empty chairs. What names are written? Do those names belong to anyone that you know? Are there any names that you're surprised have a seat at the table? On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The Sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove this people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. May we remember that we have a seat at the table. And may we always be extending a seat 
to others. There's enough room at the Lord's table for all. Well, I thank you so much for listening to this episode. I hope it was challenging and encouraging to you. If you want to help other people hear about this episode and be aware of the Walk On podcast, you can do it in a few ways. One, you can share the episodes with other people that you think they would enjoy. Tell other people about it. But also you can leave a review and rate the podcast on your podcast provider and that helps other people that you may not know come across this podcast as well. Also, I would love to hear from you. You can shoot me an email at brent at walkonpodcast.com. That's B-R-E-N-T at walkonpodcast.com. I'd love to hear of any questions that you have. I would love to know who's out there listening. So just drop a, a line to say hello and introduce yourself. Thank you so much for listening and giving this some time. May the Lord bless you as you keep taking your next step with him.